the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Our universities are becoming indoctrination camps. That's all they are. They're teaching your kids the things that they really need to know. No, my kid needs to know math and science and literature. That's what my kid needs to know. And you're not teaching him any of that. You're teaching him all this bullcrap of privilege. You know what? Here it is. Here's the lesson everybody needs. Life is not fair. You may not get everything that you want. You may not get anything that you want. But continue to pick yourself up and keep going. The Constitution and, and, and with Lady Justice, who is blind, is not supposed to be granting special favors for anyone, no matter their color, their creed, n- no matter what it is. You break the law, you go to jail. You, you succeed, good for you. Keep going. And now that you have more things, more stuff, we'll protect people from stealing that from you. That's the lesson. Now, can we get to down to math and science, please? Charles Murth, uh, uh, Murray is a uh, is an author. He's a he's a he's a scholar. He's a brilliant political science mind from um, MIT, and he has his BA in history from uh, Harvard. He's written several books. He's controversial because he looks at the facts and then says them, no matter what people want to think. He wrote the bell curve. Uh, he wrote losing ground, which. Um, you know, was the was credited as the reason why we had uh, Welfare Reform Act of 1996. Uh, he's also written what it means to be a libertarian in our hands, real education, and then um, uh, coming apart, which I just finished reading, and I know I'm way late on it because it came out in 2012. But it's it's a fascinating look at America and how we are coming apart. What has changed? He also has his recent book out by the people rebuilding liberty without permission. We wanted to get him on um, because he's a, a fascinating man. We'll have you looking at things in a completely different way quickly. Welcome to the program, Charles Murray. Thanks, Glenn. Glad to be here. So, um, Charles, let's start with let's start with this. Um, any comments on the Christian privilege thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it's actually laughable. I, I understand that it's serious, and uh, that I would be very unwilling to pay sixty grand a year. Uh, to uh, college uh, these days, like I did with my kids in earlier years, because it's gotten so bad. So I'm, I'm not laughing because it's not a problem. I'm laughing because it's so silly. It's it's uh, it's uh, the privilege is the one you refer to. If you want to talk about privilege, it is that if you go to Harvard or Princeton or Yale or a variety of other uh, highly prestigious colleges you get interviewed by places that aren't going to interview you for jobs. I mean, I'm talking about, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs and things like that. That's, that's privilege mm-hmm. when you get access to that, that kind of uh, job opportunity that mm-hmm. can make you fabulously wealthy. There are a whole variety of things that the new upper class, which is my label for this educated class, have going for them, whereby they have crafted a world that is perfectly suited to what they do best, that's privilege in a real, concrete, powerful sense that makes any Christian privilege 
trivial. So I, you know, in reading your book, it is just it's just fascinating the way you use uh, stats and the and the way you view things and and compare apples to apples. Um, but you know, you wrote this in 2012, and it is all it's all heavy on the tree now. This fruit is very ripe. Can you can yeah. you kind of go down a little bit and explain uh, what is happening to us right now? Well, yeah, just uh, this is the Cliff Notes version of the of the argument. It's real simple. That you had two things happen about half a century ago in the 1950s and thereafter, and one was that you had the good schools in this country became much more uh, willing to take kids from all over the country. I went to Harvard in the fall of 1961 uh, from Newton, Iowa. I would have never thought of applying to Harvard uh, 20 years earlier. Uh, th- that was one thing that happened. And in a sense, Glenn, that's good. I mean, you know, kids with talent get a chance to fulfill it. That's great. Uh, but what that did was over time, as the decades went on, it created a kind of new culture of all these kids who are really, really smart and uh, who who become isolated from each from the rest of the country. I, lo- they weren't before. I love in your book the way you describe this, that because we all went to school with a geek. We, I mean, I went to a, uh, went to school with a guy who was a math genius, uh, first chair violinist. Uh, he had perfect pitch. I mean, the guy was, you know, and good looking. And I just I wanted to stone him to death. If I would have lived in biblical days, I would have led the charge. Um, but, you know, I don't know what he's doing now, but he was very isolated in some ways because he was so smart. Um, and, you know, I I always you know, when when he went off to college, I always wondered what that was like, because now he was in a group of a bunch of other really, really smart people. And the way you describe this and what happens is fascinating. And it's, it's much, much different than it used to be. You know, think about this way, Glenn. If you're talking about, let's say, people with high IQs, and let's just say that's people with IQs of 130 above, uh, which I hasten to add uh, does not make them wise. It does not make them generous. It's not associated with any of these other virtues. It's just they're real smart. Okay. In 1900, only five or 10% of that really, really smart subset even went to college. Most of the people who were super smart were working as factory workers. About half of them were housewives. And you had, you had a huge mix in the country. And what's happened now is that you have these kids who are super smart, who increasingly are going to school with each other, and they're getting jobs in the same kinds of, of cities afterwards. Let me give you a quick example uh, that will that, give you a, an idea. Of it. When I went to Harvard in the fall of 1961, uh, if you walked outside Harvard Yard, you were in a sort of middle-class Boston neighborhood. You know, there are hardware stores, there were uh, uh, little grocery stores, there were, it was, it, this was not an elite place outside the precincts of the walls of Harvard. You go to Cambridge, Massachusetts today, and it has glossy little restaurants of every conceivable kind, you know, uh, all sorts of boutique shops. It has not just one, but two whole food stores within walking distance of Harvard Yard. It is an unclaimed which is completely different from the way it used to be. And once you're in that enclave at the age of 18, as a, as a freshman, 
you're likely to stay in that enclave for the rest of your life. And you are also likely to think this is the way real people live. And you begin to look down on real people. And, and I want to take that now. You've just described the elite. I'm going to take a break and come back. You describe what's happened to the, the other half of America. Charles Murray is the author of the book Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960 to 2010. Fascinating book. We'll get back to him in just a second. Charles Murray is the author of the book Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960 to uh, 2010. Uh, I started reading it here recently, and I'm, I'm just I'm fascinated by it because it's all starting to happen uh, now, and it's all being misdiagnosed. Uh, people are saying that it's racism on the left, uh, and the right is saying that it's elitism, but there's, there's actual reasons for why this is coming apart, and we're not addressing any of those. So Charles just explained why the... You know why the um, the elites have started to pull away uh, from the uh, from the average American, and it's because they 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 used to go to college in their own area. The colleges weren't elite like they are now, and you would pretty much go home and you'd you'd pretty much uh, live the same kind of life as everybody else around you, which is not happening yeah, anymore. Also, yeah, you were mixed up with all sorts of other people too, because. Look, here's an example. Uh, in an elite neighborhood like the North Shore of Chicago or whatever, which used to be prestigious in 1960 the same way it is now, but in 1960, uh, the, the, the wealthy executives in the North Shore of Chicago were mostly married to high school graduates, you know? And, and you go to those same kinds of neighborhoods today, they haven't married the girl next door. I'm talking about the guys now who are very successful. Uh, they've married the graduate from Yale Law School that their company was litigating against mm-hmm. and that, that uh, fell in love with. You, you've, got, you've got people being reinforced in these, these bubbles. Here's an example for you, Glenn. If you live in a, uh, an affluent neighborhood and you send your kids to, even to the public schools if it's in a rich neighborhood, uh, you're probably not going to have your child meet anyone who makes whose parents make a living with their hands. They're not going to meet anyone who isn't real smart. And as a result, they get to be 25, 30, 35 years old, and they sort of assume that all these people out in flyover country are really stupid and really can't be trusted to manage their own affairs. And it's we smart people who have to make the choices for them. It's a very common attitude. So tell me what's happening to the, to the you know, other half of America. Well, things started to fall apart. Uh, in, in, and now I'm, in the book, I talk exclusively about white America. And the reason I did that, Glenn, was originally just because I didn't want people to think these problems are only in the black community mm-hmm. or the Hispanic community. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, there were even bigger problems going on in white America than we realized. A lot of demoralization. Uh, that demoralization came from all sorts of things. Part of it was the economy. Uh, another part of it was the, the ways in which white working class Americans who were applying for the police academy or for the firefighting academy uh, found that they weren't getting in because affirmative action, even though that you know they'd taken the entrance examinations and mm-hmm. done very well, affirmative action was making it harder for them. There were, a, there were a variety of other things going on uh, that undermined the role 
of the male as you know putting food on the table and a mm-hmm. roof over the head right. and, the, and the, the you know the respect he got for that that was being undermined by feminism in in large part by the sexual revolution in another part though because guess what uh, a lot of guys in their early 20s who were getting all the sex they wanted to without getting married didn't feel any strong urge to get married right. so marriage marriage rates fell they plummeted in uh, the white working class and all of these things just change the nature of life in white working class neighborhoods for the worse. So now we have a group of people who are, um, you know, if you don't if you don't finish high school, you're most likely to marry somebody who didn't finish high school. Um, mm-hmm. If you went to college, you're most likely to marry somebody who went to college. So it's 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 a normal, natural thing, I think. Um, and, and I, I, I don't necessarily think that's anything nefarious. It's just the way it has, it has happened, but it is splitting us apart. Is there a way to put this back together? Well, you know, I don't believe in government programs as a way to do that. Right. I, I, I don't think, I don't think it's going to help to try to force people to have more contact with each other because you're right. People are doing what comes naturally. Look, when you get married, you want to marry somebody who gets your jokes, mm-hmm. you know, and you want to marry someone who you can talk to and so forth. Well, that does lead people with common interests and to some degree, common abilities mm-hmm. to marry each other. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it. But here's the bad part, which is that life gets really thinned out when you are cocooned in this elite bubble. Uh, I, I live in a town of 152 people, mm. 60 miles out of D.C. I'm talking to you right now, looking out my back window over the farm lands next door. And we moved here in 1989 uh, in large part because I didn't want my little children at that point to grow up only knowing the people who lived in northwest Washington. Okay, so hold on just a second, uh, Charles. As we get to... What can we do and not a government program? And I also want to talk to him a little bit about our own responsibility when it comes to social media. What's happening to us there when we come back? Talking to Charles Murray, um, author of many, many books. We happen to be talking about Coming Apart, the uh, State of White America, uh, 1960 and 2010. It's a must read. It's a really great book. Um, but, um, Charles, you were talking about, you know, in 1989, you move your kids to the farm. So they, you know, they wouldn't get caught in this trap. I did the same thing. We have a farm in a town of like 500 people. And while I can't live there because I, I work in, in the city, you know, we, we spend all of our time off there. And, you know, the kids, you know, when they're here, they're not putting their, they're not putting their arm in the back of a cow. You know what I mean? To check if she's pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. But out there she is. And my kids and I have really learned an important lesson that um the people in many ways live a better life in some ways you know the back of the cow not so much but it's just different it's just different now the way the way i often put it is that life just has a lot more texture when you're engaged with people who uh, who are not all lawyers (laughs) and they're not all they're not all rich yes you have neighbors who still help each other, who work with each other. You have things going on that are real life in small communities 
when you get out of these enclaves. But, and the, you ask for the answer. The solution is for people who are currently living in these elite bubbles to realize life is more fun if you get out of them. So that's that. But you you talk also about the the you know middle of America that the other half that didn't go to an elite college, they're tending to lose some of the moral principles. Yeah, and then the the, the collapse of marriage is the biggest problem here, because what makes uh, communities work, whether they're urban communities or small towns, is the married couple that are trying to create an environment for their kids that is good. And that's why you have the little league teams that the fathers are coaching. That's why you have people attending the PTAs. That's why you have all sorts of these interactions. And once marriage goes downhill, uh, single guys don't very often coach little league teams. You know, single dads don't. And, and this problem, I have no idea how you fix, except, I guess, Glenn, just as I want to say to the people in the bubbles, that life is more fun outside the bubble. I want to say to people who are not getting married that a good marriage is the best thing that will ever happen to you. And it's, it's worth just going way out of your way to try to find that. My daughter was going to Fordham and she met her now husband and uh, she was a uh, junior, I think maybe a sophomore. And she said to me, uh, you know, she was talking to me about him and I really liked him and, and I said, so is he the one? She said, yeah, he's the one. I said, so when are you guys getting married? And she said, well, not until after we get out of marry, not until we get out of college, and then we'll, you know, settle down. And I said, what? And she said, Dad, you know, it's just people don't do that anymore. You know, the world just frowns on you. And I said, wow, I didn't think that my child would care about appearances. I said, you, when you find the right person, spend every second with them in marriage it changes everything and they are happily married now and she got she got married almost right away but her 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 professors looked at her when she said i i'm not going to be here i'm i'm going to you know i'm getting married they all looked at her like what is wrong with you yeah and and an awful lot of that is uh, exaggerated too once you get into the elite school so even to get married in your 20s is considered too young yeah. And uh, you don't get married until you're 32, 33. You're already making a quarter million dollars a year. Jeez. And, you know, <laughs> if that kind of approach to life, uh, I think, is missing the point in lots of important ways. One of the really interesting points you uh, make, we're talking to Charles Murray, by the way, uh, uh, author of the book Coming Apart. One of the really interesting points you make in the book is how sort of the great society welfare programs of the 60s uh, led to... Uh, sort of a um, uh, a degradation of 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 the four pillars of American exceptionalism. You just talked about marriage; the others being religiosity, industriousness, and honesty. Uh, can you talk about the, the relationship between those programs and the changes in our attitude of those main points yeah. of American exceptionalism? Yeah, the, there's, they're, they're pretty simple uh, in all sorts of ways during the 1960s when you greatly expanded the uh, the scope of things that government did for single women, for example. It made it economically a lot more feasible to have a baby uh, without a husband than it used to be. I'm not saying it was easy. I'm not saying that they were, you know, getting rich from having babies on welfare. No, but it became possible in a way that had not been possible. Well, guess what? When it becomes easier economically, then more 
women start to have babies in those circumstances, and then the stigma starts to erode. Because when you got one girl in the high school class who's pregnant, uh, that's kind of a tough position to be in. When you got six, seven, eight, or nine, when you start to have a daycare center for the babies, mm-hmm. you got a problem in terms of the stigma. So the stigma goes away. That, that was the one thing. The whole problem with with crime that the 1960s when crime started to shoot up and continue to shoot up for the next three decades because of changes in the criminal justice system, whereby the old rather simple formula, you commit a serious crime, you're going to go to jail, uh, that broke down. People now talk about the incarceration, mass incarceration. Well, learn your history. The crime surge started when we stopped incarcerating people who committed serious crimes, and we've been trying to catch up with it ever since. We got a lot to answer for, uh, Glenn. I think you're a baby boomer like me, and uh, if uh, we did all, we were we were advocating all sorts of policies in the 1960s and 70s, which were just a disaster for the culture. Yeah, that would be my sister that did that, not me. <laughs> not me. I, <laughs> you're, you're I'm not born in 1964, that, uh, so I'm at the very last year of that. Uh, and, you know, I'm kind of sitting here watching it and, and seeing that, uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't work, and nor do the, the policies that we're talking about today. I mean, we're, today we're talking about the shooter in um, California, the killer, that went out and tried to uh, kill people at YouTube. She's crazy. She's out of her mind crazy. But nobody's talking about what is th- what is the underlying problem. We we had a lot of guns forever in America. You could go in and as a you know a ten year old kid and go into a store and buy a gun and bullets in the nineteen sixties. It wasn't a problem. There's a hole in our society right now that none of us seem to want to address. And it's a, it's a cultural hole. It is. Uh, and, and the problem is that it seems to be getting worse. Um, here's a problem we haven't talked about. In 1960, if you were a guy of working age and you were reasonably healthy, you were in the labor force. I mean, if you weren't in the labor force, everybody got in your back, whether it was your girlfriend or mm-hmm. your parents or, your, or, or that, if the other guys would get in your back if you weren't either working or looking hard for work. Now we've got, uh, even in a time of full employment, you've got something in the order of 15% of working class guys in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who aren't even looking for work. That is a new phenomenon whereby you have a breakdown in the social fabric that makes it, that's another thing that contributes to the deterioration of life in, in working class America. How did that come about? Once again, it became possible to exist at the margins of society in ways that it was much harder to exist in, in previous years. And a lot of that was cultural. You were a bum if you behaved that way. And you're no longer a bum. Hmm. Talking to Charles Murphy, uh, Murray, I, um, I want to continue our conversation here just a bit with you, um, Charles, and, and, uh, and, and delve a little bit deeper into, uh, <laughs> You know, what can be done and the role of social media is that is that also teaching us things? Are we nobody wants to take personal responsibility on anything? Everybody wants to say, oh, well, maybe we should, you know, change uh, Facebook into a utility or whatever. No, well, no, we are Facebook. We are Twitter. We are our own worst enemy. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that when we come back. Charles Murray, the book 
is uh, coming apart. Came out a few years ago, but it's really well worth a read now because it's, you know, we're, we're being pushed into racism and, and pushed into this is what the problem is. No, no, the, there's some actual stats here that show what the problem is. Let's deal with the stats and the facts. Charles Murray is um, the author of uh, Coming Apart, The State of White America. And, uh, and, and Charles, I want to ask you a question. This is my perception, okay, of, of, of how things are. That there is, there's always been a group of racists, um, and they're on both sides, all sides. Um, it's a human problem. However, and we were getting better as a society on the whole. Um, however, we are being pushed and painted as racist and, you know, Islamophobes and everything else. And this is allowing these crazy nut jobs to be able to come out from under, you know, under the wraps out of the holes that they have always been in and start to make points and say, see, they are coming after you. They are. See, this is a problem. And so we're, yeah, we're not more racist. We're. It's just that we're kind of being pushed into corners. Is 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 that you accurate? Know, we were, we're reaping what we sowed. Uh, back in ni- the 1960s, when we adopted uh, the rule that it is okay to treat people by their race as long as you're doing it for the right reasons, we opened Pandora's box. Uh, you know, at the 1964 Civil Rights Act, I wish they had had as the core of that, there shall be no law that gives one race advantage over another legally of any kind and just said well that, that, that. you know here we are on the anniversary of martin luther king's death and that really was his point wasn't it is his yeah. point was america live up to the words you wrote in the declaration of independence and the constitution and what happened was that we said i, I we gave identity politics the green light it's great for black people to, to identify with being black and great for Latinos to identify as Latinos and so forth. And as that went on, and as the the kind of anger that was coming out uh, toward whites increased, all at once you had the 70-odd percent of the people in this country who are white who started to say, or at least some of them did, hey, uh, what's, you know, what's good for them is good for us. I'm going to start identifying as being white, mm-hmm. as being my primary way of thinking about myself. It, it, it was it was the inevitable consequence of saying it's okay to treat people differently by race. How much of a role is social media playing in the acceleration of of our country being torn apart? Uh, it is it is amplifying all of our natural tendencies to only talk to people who think the same things we do. So now you can get your news from only sources that agree with you you can interact with only people who politically agree with you and that is happening big time on both the left and the right which i think accounts for a lot of this tendency to say if somebody disagrees with me politically they are not just disagreeing with me on a political issue they are bad they are bad people and that's driving me nuts because <laughs> it's so it's so widespread now. In in looking at all the stats and and studying this for so long, and being a watchman on the the tower and the gates and and blowing the horn and nobody listening, are you are you are you still optimistic? 
I'm I'm uh, I'm, a, I'm optimistic for the long term, Glenn. I cannot imagine that 200 years from now, with all of the increases in wealth and technology that will have occurred, that we still think that a big government running our lives minutely is a great idea. I, I think that that a lot of the trends in technology and wealth are going to make it easier for us to live free lives. But Glenn, you and I are part of, here's where I get pessimistic, uh, we both, uh, in one way or another, are Madisonians. I mean, we are committed to the original American ideals of limited government and freedom. And I'm afraid over the last few years, we've discovered a whole lot of people who talk to good game with regard to that didn't really believe it when push came to shove. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, pe- I'm pessimistic in the short term. Uh, I don't know where we resuscitate a, a movement that says, for heaven's sakes, let people live their lives as they see fit. I don't see a constituency for that anymore. Believe it or not, I think I do. Um, I, I think I do know where that, that movement is beginning, and it's strange. And um, we'll talk about it in the next couple, couple of weeks. Charles, I'd love to have you back on again. There's so much I want to talk to you about, about libertarianism and everything else. I can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you, Charles. I, I enjoyed it, Tom. Thank you. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network.